You're listening to episode 148 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Before I introduce today's incredible guest, I'd love to give a warm welcome to our two winners from our contest to celebrate the soft launch of our Patreon membership and 88 Cups of Tea's three-year anniversary. And a huge congratulations as well to Melissa C. and Victoria Lee. They won our limited edition three-year anniversary tote bag and pop socket along with 45 seconds of airtime to talk about their current writing projects. Without further ado, I'm so excited for you all to hear what Melissa C. is working on for her current writing project. Hi, I'm Melissa C. and I'm from New York. My work in progress is an own voices why contemporary romance called All Kind of Perfect. It's about two teenagers, Tessa, a girl with cerebral palsy and anxiety, and Yuki, a Japanese-American boy keeping secrets from his family, who fall in love because of New York City, Hamlet, a mutual love for chocolate, and their badass friends, all while shattering the notion of inspiration porn. This book means so much to me because it's long overdue for disabled characters to be getting proper love stories, and I want to be a part of the authors who are seeking to change that narrative. My journey as a writer hasn't exactly been an easy one, but after stumbling across 88 cups of tea, I knew I'd found the community that I needed. Quite simply, Our Kind of Perfect wouldn't be the book it is now were it not for this group. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you all so much. Melissa, All Kind of Perfect sounds like the perfect own voices YA contemporary romance. I'm so proud of you for contributing in telling proper love stories for disabled characters, and I know the world is going to fall in love with Tessa and Yuki. And next, I'm so excited to share Victoria Lee's overview about her debut novel. Hi, I'm Victoria Lee, and I'm so excited to have the chance to talk to y'all about my debut novel, The Fever King, coming out March 1st. The Fever King takes place in a semi-futuristic, speculative North Carolina. It's about a boy named Gnome who spent his life resisting a xenophobic government via some judicious cyber-terrorism. But when he gets infected with a virus giving him the magic ability to control technology, he's recruited by the Minister of Defense to join this government magic training program. Gnome plans to learn the science behind his magic and use it to tear down the government from the inside. But when Gnome starts to fall in love with the Minister's cruel and brilliant son, he has to decide how far he's willing to go in order to do the right thing. You'll like this book if you like own voices, Jewish characters and fantasy, charismatic villains, and books about people doing terrible things for very good reasons. Victoria, first off, a huge congratulations about your debut novel releasing on March 1st. That is so soon. The Fever King sounds awesome, and I can't wait for readers to get their hands on your book. Thank you again, Melissa and Victoria, for giving us a peek into your stories. We wish you both the best of luck. Storytellers, we've officially launched our Patreon membership, and I'm lovingly calling all of our patrons Super Storytellers. If 88 Cups of Tea has been there for you in any way, whether that's through this podcast or our website resources, our private Facebook group, or our community in general, and you'd love to support the show and community in a tangible way, please consider becoming a super storyteller. Of course, there's absolutely no obligation whatsoever. Only do what feels right for you. If you'd like to join our Patreon, I'd be honored and I'm excited to share all the fun benefits with you from the different tiers and also have this opportunity to really pull back the curtains and show you more of the production behind 88 Cups of Tea. You can sign up over at patreon.com slash 88 Cups of Tea. 
That's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. I very much appreciate you thinking about becoming a super storyteller and so much love to each and every one of you. Now on to today's conversation, we have Tamara Pierce on the show with us. Tamara is a young adult fantasy author with over 30 published books. Her books, Lady Knight, Trickster's Queen, Bloodhound, and her most recent novel, Tempest and Slaughter, have all reached number one on the New York Times bestselling list. Tamara was also granted the Margaret A. Edwards Award in 2013 for her significant and lasting contribution to young adult literature. In today's episode, Tamara shares the moments in her life when she fell in love with writing, found her passion for crafting female heroes in her fantasy novels, learned from rejection, and pushed past writer's block. We talk about how her insecurities affect our craft and can make us believe we aren't good enough. Tamara gives us incredible advice on how she pushes past these barriers and how she encourages herself to take risks. Further into our conversation, we also cover the following listener questions from our private Facebook group. How does Tamara balance writing the serious topics while staying in a young adult age rating? How did Tamara manage to make a lifelong career of writing? Any tips on being part of the industry for a long time, not a fun time? Does she have any world-building tips specifically regarding the creation of magic systems and their rules? Now let's jump right in. How did you first fall in love with storytelling? Well, I came by it honestly. It runs in the family. I didn't find out until, oh gosh, 10 years or so ago that my great-grandfather had actually written and published in the local newspaper a ghost story and in fact the family gave me the manuscript they felt I should have it but every time there was a family holiday and the adults would gather around the campfire after the kids were pretty well worn out I would sit with them and they would start telling stories about their past about stories that were handed down from their families, and I would just listen. And my dad was really good at telling stories. He'd written some poetry for the local paper while he was in the service. And then um, he got me when I was in sixth grade telling stories to myself as I did dishes. And rather than say people would think I was insane, if I talk to myself, he suggested that I write a book. And until that time, I had thought if I touched his typewriter, I would die, because he had forbidden us to go near it. He wrote his union newsletter on the typewriter, but he said I could use it. I thought, well, it must be a pretty big idea for him if he said I could use the typewriter, so I asked what I should write about. The whole time I was growing up, my dad and I exchanged books, and we watched television shows together, so he knew what I liked, and he thought about it, and he said, how about travels in a time machine? And I liked that idea. The first thing I thought was, I can pretend I went back in time to the Trojan War. With that in mind and his typewriter in front of me, I started pecking away a finger at a time. I never finished it. Uh, I gave up a year later, but by then I was hooked on writing. 
and my parents broke up, so he took the typewriter with him, but I kept writing on paper. A year after that, my homeroom teacher and my English teacher heard me complain I didn't have anything to read for the weekend, and she handed me The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. And I went home, and I had started reading it. I finished around 2 a.m. the next morning, and I cried because I thought there wasn't anything else. And I went into school on Monday, and I said, Mrs. Jacobson, there isn't any more. And she quickly shoved the next two books into my hands. And after I finished that and The Hobbit, then I went on to Robert Howard and, oh gosh, every other fantasy novel I could find, if not at school, in the local stores that had books for sale. And I read Fritz Lieber and Robert Howard and Michael Moorcock and everything I could find and reread, of course, Tolkien. And then the next year, I found science fiction. For a long time, that was what I wrote, only I was writing what I wasn't finding, which was girl heroes in those books because the ones I did find all disappointed me in some way. But that was where I started. Yes, I do remember I was doing some research and came across that, you know, when you were growing up in the 60s and 70s, there were only about three heroines in books. And one of them was in uh, Lord of the Rings. And the character, I hope I'm pronouncing the character's name correctly, Ewan, that she had to basically give up what she was doing with swords to become a housewife and to take care of the children. And you said something that was really powerful was, okay, that's fine. But why did she have to give up what she was doing? And I think that's incredible because I feel like growing up in the sixties and seventies, it was still that culture of men and men only. And women weren't trusted to interpret their own experiences. It's always, what do they have that term called nowadays? They, They made it up. It's called mansplaining. Yeah. What's fascinating is that you were able to see this for yourself and not get brainwashed by culture and society in the 60s and 70s of what was expected of women or even the expectations of men. Yeah. You were able to see all of this and break through all of that BS and call it out for what it was. What was your environment growing up like? How were you so self-aware? Well, I wasn't exactly... I was sort of, and it was my mother who kept my eyes on that. I think the idea of me being an attorney was more that she thought I was too flaky for the work, that I was too scatterbrained, because she is the one who introduced me to feminism and encouraged me to grow up as a feminist. She also educated me in terms of art, uh, in terms of the English language. She did not approve of fantasy. She thought it was that junk and science fiction. And one of my favorite memories is in my uh, ninth grade year, my English teacher at the time, Miss Kepix, I had run ahead of the class in terms of reading and writing up the book of that month or that week, depending. And she had given me, um, I think, I think it was Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and I loved it. It It's a brilliant book, 
still. And I went home and my mother said, what are you reading? And I showed her and she went nuts. She said, that isn't English literature. That isn't good writing. That's junk. I can't believe an English teacher gave you that book to read. And she went back to, came, showed up at school the next day and dragged me to Ms. Kepik's room. And she started in on Ms. Kepik's. And Ms. Kepik's just stood there quietly. And when my mom ran out of steam, Ms. Kepik said, have you read it? And my mother said, no, I don't have to. And Ms. Kepik says, I'm afraid I can't accept your comments unless you've read it. So go home, read it, come back here next week, tell me what you think then. But until then, I'm not going to listen to you. And to my astonishment, my mother, who had a will of iron, took the book home. She read it. She came back and she said, well, I was mistaken. Wow. And I thought I was going to faint. <laughs> and a year later, I was reading iRobot. We had moved back to Pennsylvania and I brought it home and my mother said, you're reading that junk again. And I held it out to her and I said, read it. And she did. And she liked it. So she could be reasoned with about some things. My writing wasn't one of them. Um, I think because my parents were divorced, my writing was my dad's thing. And anything that was my dad's, she wouldn't accept. But she introduced me to all kinds of other books. Um, she taught me about European politics, European history. I learned so much from her. And the problem was she had a problem with alcohol. She had mental problems. I didn't know these things until I was in college. But she was an extremely intelligent woman. That's why she and my dad got together in the first place. They were both smart. But she made it through college, and she never let him forget it. He quit in his at the beginning of his sophomore year to get a job and raise a family. So I learned a lot from both. His specialties were things like history, American history, especially our local area, and world history, military science. Um, so between the two of them, I got a really wide education in the world. I also got a really messed up growing up period with my two sisters, but I got a lot out of it. What do you mean by the messed up? Um, my mother just, her mental illness and her drinking got worse and worse. She became abusive, especially after my father left. Um, she was abusive to my father while they were together physically abusive. So we had that to live with and try and get through living in California. And then we moved back to Southern Pennsylvania. We were really poor, very, very poor. At one point we were living in a four room house with no shower. We bathed from the sink. We had a coal stove for heat uh, and our bathroom was a wooden cubicle in the cow pasture 
with no flushing. And if our landlady had one of her episodes and turned off the plumbing, we had to go get our water from a cow water tank down at the end of the street. So it was pretty hard. The one thing I could count on, two things, was school and my books. Do you mind me asking, because I do gravitate towards our own family stories, Mm -hmm. was your father, it sounded like he had a special and good relationship with you when he was home at the time. Am I wrong in assuming that? No, no. He sounded soft and kind, like he He had a soft spot for you. He did. He did for all of us girls, but he was a very tough fellow. He served in the Korean War. And the way he described it was that the Koreans took him up for a visit up north, him and his buddy. And after a while, they decided they didn't like the place where they were staying. So they left and they walked back to their camp. He didn't mention till much later that the place he was staying was a prisoner of war camp. And he and his buddy had to march back over the Forbidden Zone to get back to their army. Oh my gosh. Okay, so a lot of post-traumatic stress that he had to deal with as well. Yes, (gasps) yes. And it took me a long time to figure it out because in his day, real men didn't talk about this stuff. I did see the... The wound he had on his thigh, it was just this groove. But that was because I came into the bedroom when I shouldn't have. He never talked about it in those terms. He would make jokes. But the only time he ever talked about it, it was um, right before my husband and I got married. And the guys went to the bowling alley in the Port Authority bus station in the middle of New York. And Tim needed to pick up some money at the bank in the nearest one was in Times Square, which was a very rough area of town. Lots of obscene movie theaters. They also broadcast martial arts movies, which I went to all the time. But there were erotic uh, stores with movies and gadgets and outfits. And at night, the streets would be crowded with people who wanted to party and drink, people who wanted to meet prostitutes and cops. And our friend George, who was with them, wanted to go down 41st Street, which was nothing but the backs of old Broadway theaters and the steps you took to get it backstage. And it was perfectly dark and bad people waited there to mug people. And Tim knew that. And he says, no, we're going down 42nd Street. And George is like, no, we'll get beaten up. We'll get our pockets back. And Tim and Thomas, who was there, said, no, no, it'll be fine. It's brightly lit. There are more cops there than any other place in the city. And my pa was there with them because he'd gone bowling and another guy. And they started walking down 42nd Street. My pa slung an arm around George's shoulders and an arm around Tim's shoulders. And he raised his voice just slightly. He said, did I ever tell you boys about the time that me and my buddy were visiting North Korea during the war? And we decided that we were going to head on back to our lines. And they came after us. Tim said that the crowd in front of them just spread apart. And they walked through like Moses crossing the Dead Sea. And I just looked at Tim and said, 
he was storying you. Because I remember how my dad wouldn't talk about it. But when he, could, when he wanted to tell a story, he told a really good story. I mean, he is the writer, right? Yep. He's a storyteller. That's, that's where I got it from. Wow. Okay. I am curious and I cannot help but ask, when your father and mother started to get into really serious arguments and it just couldn't work out between them anymore and had to separate, yeah. did your father... I know, again, at that time, it's it was almost unheard of for fathers to to be the caretakers. It's always yeah. expected by society yeah. that the women have to stay yeah. home. And I especially grew up with this because of Asian culture, and that still happens uh -huh. today. So now, for your father, with everything happening, did he ever, in a way, fight to want to oh, yeah. bring his girls with him? Oh, yes. Yes, he did. He yeah, I ran away from my mother one night, and he came and got me, and I stayed with him and his then-girlfriend for a couple weeks, and then we ended up in a home. And my father um, went to court and did his very best to get us. But in the end, and my mother cleaned up her act, so she looked like the good mother, and he was living with a woman he wasn't married to. And oh, so that didn't look good on paper. No, it did not. Not for California courts, not in the 1960s. Okay, I completely understand. I was going to say, your father sounds like a very good, kind, kind man. Yeah. And how was your relationship with your mom more recently? How are you? Were things patched up? Was she? Did she come around? Did she? No. No, well, she continued to deteriorate. She got more physically abusive with my sisters. She and I did all right together until I went to college. And she felt, even though we planned my going to college all through my teenage years, um, she felt my going away so far was a betrayal. She got worse with my sisters. My sisters actually got away from her Kim when she was 14 and she went to a home and Melanie to the streets when she was 12 until she went to a home. Kim actually reached out to my dad and he and he had married his girlfriend Mary Lou and they took her. They tried to take Melanie too but they didn't get along so Melanie came back east to where I was living and entered a group home there. How are you and your sisters today? Uh, Melanie and I don't speak. Um, just personalities, and Melanie has a bad way of making promises and breaking them. She fights with Kim. She fought with my father and stepmother and told very bad things about them when they were alive, well, Pa was alive. And um, so I haven't spoken with her in years. I speak to my youngest nephew when I can. He moves around a lot. Um, Kim, on the other hand, from she went and lived with my parents, dad and stepmother in Idaho. I went there when I was in my 20s and lived there for a year. And Kim went to college, double majored, 
double minor just makes my head hurt. <laughs> and I always said she was the smart one in the family. And people think I'm denigrating myself and saying I'm not smart. No, no, I know I'm smart. <laughs> But, but she's she, like super smart. She is super smart. She I get that. I have a sister like that too. <laughs> oh, you have my sympathies. Kim, um, she double majored, double minored. She was head of her sorority. She joined the Air Force. Wow. She, yeah, she worked on missiles for a long time. And then she got a rift out, they call it, when they decide to reduce their numbers. And when she knew it was coming, they had moved to Rapid City, South Dakota. And she started riding as a helper in ambulances and decided she liked it. So when they gave her her package to leave, a money package, she went to a school in North Dakota and got her training as an EMT, emergency medical technician. And she did that for years, not just in an ambulance, but climbing down into canyons to rescue people and riding around in planes and helicopters to rescue people. And then she decided she probably should get something to back her up when she got too old. So she went and got her bachelor's in nursing. Wow. In her spare time. Oh, my gosh. Thanks a lot, Kim, for making everybody else look bad. Thank yeah, you. I know. I know. <laughs> She's a, she's another cat person. She, <laughs> she she just moved and they had lost all of their cats before. Oh so no. she's waiting to get all settled in where she lives now before she gets any more cats. So she's feeding wildlife now. Oh my gosh, she is yeah. incredible. Oh yeah. I based Alana on her. And oh, now wow. you see why. I understand why. Oh my yeah. gosh. Uh, that reminds me of my middle sister. She went, she got accepted to Yale and mm -hmm. she double majored in sociology and molecular developmental. I, I honestly <laughs> don't even know what it's called. It's just so smart. I can't even say it. Yeah. And I was like so embarrassed yeah. every time everyone asks, so what did your sister major in? And I'm like, I start off strong and it just... Just it's a thing. plummets. It's a thing with molecules. <laughs> yes, it's a thing with something about labs. And then she now is like doing consulting at Deloitte and is now studying oh. to try and get into Harvard Business School. I'm like, of course. I'm yeah. so proud of her. Yeah. But that's my baby sister. Yeah. That's my middle sister, you know? Yeah. So I appreciate you that you understand and give me your sympathies. Yes. So, yes, I completely understand. And we both know we're smart, but you know, sometimes yeah. in my family, we just have those other people who are just a wee, even yeah. more smart. Yeah which is awesome. They make the family proud. Yes. I'm the kind of person too who loves to connect dots. I always love to trace back yeah. what is it? Why are we here where we are? Yeah. And I do remember reading, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you worked with a foster home where you were yeah. sort of like the, the parent. You acted like a parent figure. Yeah. In college, with what happened with me and my sisters, um, I thought I was going to go into psychology and flunked the math requirement. But while I was in college, I did psychiatric research and a study that was going on at the University of Pennsylvania, and I had work study. First, I chose tutoring for the West Philadelphia's free school for kids who were struggling with their studies. And then I got a job at the Philadelphia Juvenile Court 
the Public Defenders Division as a student social worker. I had a 40-client list, and I only worked 15 hours a week. So I had a good-sized caseload. I saw a lot of what went on with teenagers in the court system. I was visiting in the juvenile justice center, interviewing my clients there. And I took a lot of social work courses and sociology courses, as well as the psychology courses. And when I moved to Idaho to renew my acquaintance with my dad and Mary Lou and Kim, the only job available for my qualifications, and in fact, the only job I've ever had that I was qualified for was a house mother in a group home for teenage girls. Half of them had had family troubles, runaways, things like that, and the other half had criminal records. So every other week, I went in for day and night, the whole week, and worked with these girls. And they wanted to find out about this book I was sending around, The Song of the Lioness. And I was forbidden to let them read it when the director found out there was sex and drugs and alcohol and violence in it because these things had gotten the girls in the home in the first place. So after school and before bedtime, every day I was on shift, they would quite literally drag me to the dining room table because that's where all the talking got done. And I would sit with the manuscript in my lap and I would tell them the story, somewhat edited, but (laughs) not quite as edited as the director thought it was because, well, I figured if he was that worried about it, he'd be there to listen and make sure. And since he wasn't, I could use my judgment. So all those naughty things that people talked about later was all in the original manuscript. And a year later, when my first agent told me to turn it into four books for teenagers, I realized I could do it because in a way, I already had. So I owe my girls. You had some real talk with them, and that's why you're able to speak to them. That directly translates over to your success, and your stories were real. They weren't about telling girls to give up what they love, whether it's sword fighting, sword making, to just stay home and watch the children. Fine if you do, then you can still keep your day job. What is the problem? Yeah. We were taught so long that we were last, that it was always woman's job to sacrifice. I mean, the libraries are full of books of women giving stuff up, giving up themselves to take care of families and to take care of other people. And especially in our day and age, there are so many alternatives to that. And women should be encouraged to look because we have so much to contribute. We have so much we can add. There are so many things we can do that men can't. You know, there are so many devices that men can't handle because their hands are too big. Everyone always said women and their soft, you know, weak hands. Well, those weak hands are capable of doing so much. And women are so good at things that men always thought were theirs, like mathematics. And I got this wonderful box of cards, postcards, and on the back are drawings and notes 
about all of these women from ancient Greece on who were into science and plants and math and social work all through time who did all this stuff because they weren't going to just crater to the system. And all of that was not available to me as a kid. I sort of had to make it up as I went. I looked everywhere. I had made Marion, but she sort of faded out of Robin Hood. There was Britta Mart, the Lady Knight, but all she did was ride around after this handsome guy and cry because he never looked at her. You wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover to ask about the requirements to enter the FBI. And I yep. just thought, I'm like, wow, everything you mentioned about women and how capable we are, it's true. We would make some of the best agents at the FBI. And we're such yep. emotionally intelligent and intuitive creatures. You said that someone at the FBI wrote back saying that girls were not allowed to be agents. But if you worked hard at school and graduated high school... You could apply to be a secretary. Yep. Wow. I later found out that Hoover was like this for pretty much any innovation, and he had an iron grip on Washington. Once he was gone, they started opening up, and there are plenty of women in the Bureau now. Uh, The first time, well, when I read The Silence of the Lambs, the book, I just grinned all the way through because the girl came from Clarice Starling, came from an area not only like mine, but in the Jonathan Demme movie when she goes back to where the one girl was found, back into the woods in that small, poor town. He filmed that right near where I grew up because I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, I know this town. I know that these kinds of houses. I know these kinds of people. This is near where I grew up. So I was so pleased when they opened up the Bureau to Women, when West Point opened up to women. That was when I started planning the Kelladry books. And when I got the chance to do my third girl hero, I'd been turning over West Point for a long time and wondering where I'd go with it. And then when I had the chance to do Kel, one young woman fought all the way to the Supreme Court to get into the last all-male military college. And she finally did. But she was in it for a week and she left because the antagonism was so much worse. She thought it would be less, I think, since she was in, but it wasn't. But a year later, Nancy Mace and another woman went to the Citadel, and they made the whole program and went into the Air Force. So that between the women at West Point and Nancy Mace and her friend, that was where I started the Kell books. The first girl to return to knighthood training in 200 years. I'm going to rewind a little bit here 
And I'm going to ask you because there is something that was really fascinating for me, and I'm approaching this from our community's perspective. I keep uh-huh. a very close eye on our listeners, and a majority of them, I would say about 99%, are storytellers working on their own craft in writing. Yeah. And it is absolutely a thing we talk about, which is writer's block or yeah. how other people call creative block. Yeah. And I remember hearing you started writing what you wanted to see. So you just started writing what you would have loved to have read. You weren't writing to start this movement to break barriers. You were writing for yourself, which is, I I believe, is when it speaks most to people, when you're being truthful to what you want to see. And then in 10th grade, you stopped writing your own fiction because you were blocked for five years. Now, reflecting back on it right now, why do you think you were blocked? Was it fear because you were still, you were writing, you had a pretty good momentum and then it stopped. So I would love to discuss a little bit about creative block and how to overcome this. It wasn't normal. I'd had bits of writer's block all along. Usually it was just, I'd run out of idea. I needed to move on to something else. And when you're starting out, that's the common thing. You have to It's like running. You have to practice and practice and practice to build up the wind to get your body to do the long runs. And writing is the same. Painting is the same. Acting is the same. Playing an instrument is the same. The the more you do, the more you do. Um, In the case of that, though, uh, the problem started with my mother. Um, I had written a short story. My teachers were always saying, you're such a good writer. Instead of writing this fantasy stuff, uh, good writers write about the world they know. If you were to write stories about things that happened to you, and things that you know, um, this would be a really good thing. So I really respected my teachers. and, And so I wrote a short story about a girl at a party trying to be friendly with a boy. And I sent it off to Seventeen magazine. And to my very great surprise, I had no idea of the rules. I wrote it in pencil. I wrote it single uh, single line, not double space. Um, I didn't include a self-addressed stamped envelope, which was required in submitting in those days. But she wrote me back. And she thanked me for sending the story. And she said it wasn't what they were looking for at the time. But she said, she explained about double spacing. She explained about typing. She explained about a self-addressed stamped envelope. And she said, I enjoyed your story. I would very much like to see more work for you. Keep writing. And I hope to be able to publish something of yours someday. I didn't realize at the time how unusual a rejection letter like this was. I did later when I went to work for a while in publishing. She, it was very kind. I always wanted to meet her and thank her. But I, I was thinking about what she said. And I took it in and my mother said, who sent you a letter? Because she out there was a guy back in California and she was always on the outlook for me getting too involved and I and I said I got this letter from Babette Rosemond it just 
17. And she, she said, why? And I, I thought she would be proud of me for having the courage to send a letter to an editor. And I explained, and she exploded. Who was I to think I was good enough to submit letters, stories to magazine? Um, I was nowhere near good enough to even send it to a school, to a to uh, to think I was good enough to send a letter to and a story to a national magazine. I wasn't good enough to send it to a school magazine. I had a long way to go. I didn't know the first thing about. It went on for hours. I actually tried to run away and realized that way down the road to the highway, all the things that could happen to me, and I hadn't packed or anything, so I went back and I didn't write another story for five years. I wrote school article, letters for the school literary magazine. I wrote uh, play for a talent contest, um, did schoolwork, of course. Um, I wrote stories that were takeoffs on friends' stories that they were working on, but I didn't write anything of my own until summer after my sophomore year in college. And I have no idea why I started then. I just did. I, I just... I can't help but wonder, I'm just shocked that your mom had that reaction because she was such a feminist. Do we think it's because it was tied again into writing, which is what yeah. tied to your father? So reminded her all of a sudden she was in a rage thinking well, about your just, father? Not just that. I didn't find out till my senior year and she showed me a piece of writing she was working on. She had tried to write too. <gasps> oh, And the wow. piece... The piece I saw was extremely good. It was small and cramped and painful to read, but it was really good. And I said, so you're going to finish this, right? And send it in. And she said, no, it's not good enough. Oh, she wow. was so critical that she couldn't force herself through. And even if she didn't think it was the best work she should do, she couldn't even face trying it somehow somewhere she just was so locked up in her own insecurities she couldn't see her way through it was the same way with her painting i thought her painting was brilliant but she wouldn't try to exhibit it or sell it or anything because she said no it's not good enough yet it was never going to be good enough wow okay that explains a lot now yeah. reflecting on all of this what would you share to our community, our listeners listening in right now? What would you tell them if they are going through rejection? And many of them write in saying yeah. that they go through many rejections and extremely oh, yeah. crippling and depressing and anxiety inducing. What can you share from all of your experiences and seeing what happened to your mom too and how that also affected you directly impacted you and your belief in yourself? Well, there, you may or may not have heard of him. He's a pretty American artist. There's a wise man named Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> over here who once said the words that I live by. Dare to be stupid. Just 
you're always going to think the worst of what you do. You're always going to see the parts that need fixing, the parts you can do better. Even when you think it's finished, you're going to look at it and find stuff that you hate. I had to learn to make myself believe or pretend to believe that I was good. I would stand in front of the mirror after I got out of college and literally tell myself over and over and over, you're good, you're good, you're good, till I halfway believed it. Because you're never, ever, ever, unless you're deluded, going to believe or the unusual that you are good, that your work is perfect, that you need to change nothing. There's always going to be things you need to fix, tweaks you have to make. And you can do that and never finish a second piece because you will always be find something that you should fix. Or you can get it as good as you can, tell yourself, yes, I believe it's good enough and send it out and get to work on the next thing. The more you do, the better you get. So the more you do and the more you send out, the more you work on, the more you send out. And you keep going, and there are going to be disappointments. I used to give myself a day when a short story came back, and a week when a book came back, and then it went out again. I might make a couple changes, but after the time limit was up, I'd send it out again. Because if I stopped and thought anymore, I'd never send it. So you just keep at it, and you just keep doing more stuff. My agent told me when I came back, and I said, Kirkus said it was horrible. She looked at me, and she said, Tammy, all bad reviews are wrong. All good reviews are right. And one of the things I learned working in a literary agency and seeing stuff that I thought was great come back turned down is it's, chances are, it's not about your work. Okay, the editor may describe what they think needs fixing. Jean Carl gave me five pages of no when she saw Alana the first time. And Claire made me go talk to her. And after we talked and we discussed what she felt needed work and what I was going to do next, she took the four books. Never give up. But what also happens, and I learned this working at the literary agency, is it may have nothing to do with what you work. The editor may have not gotten any sleep the night before. She may have just come from the dentist and would hate everything she looked at. She may have just gotten pink slip and has to look for a job. It may have nothing to do with you whatsoever. The first person who saw Song of the Lioness said it had too many rules. And I went into Claire and I said, Claire, he says it has too many rules. What does that mean? She's a knight. Of course she's about rules. And she said, Tammy, he didn't get it. We'll move on. And I realized you have to take that into account. It can have nothing to do with you. I can't look at the Alana books. And every time I say that, the fans make these horrible, horrible noises. And I'm there, no, no, 
It's nothing to do with you. You're on the other side of the painting. I don't see what you see. I'm on the back side. I see the splotches and the threads coming out and the splinters on the, on the frame. You see the whole story. So I think I made them understand. But even up to the book you finished yesterday, you're always going to see something. Now, this perfectly segues into one of our listeners. She, well, first of all, we've had like, I I believe over 25 or 30 uh, people writing in about how much they loved you when I posted it in our private Facebook group. And they all were hoping for an opportunity to ask you a question. So I'm going to just choose one because I want to make sure I respect the time time limit here. So we can go a little over. Oh, no, I'm so worried about your voice. I want to make sure it's it's okay. 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 Thank you, Tamara. So Catherine Flannery, she asked something that we've already discussed, which was what kind of motivational tips do you have for people in a creative slump? And I think you answered that beautifully earlier. But then she also went on to ask, how do you balance writing the serious topics in in regards to sex, violence, and racism while staying in a young adult age rating? Young adults are pretty much as close to adult intelligence as young adults young, you know, the 20-somethings. The difference is just um, developing impulse control rather than intellect. Um, And in previous ages, there was no such thing as young adult. You reached a certain point around 14 or 15, and you were an adult. So they're more impulsive, but they're not stupid and especially the smart ones are thinking on an adult level already. It's the impulse control that you have to be careful of. And some young adults are more cautious and some are more reckless. So what I did was I, I'm not good at making things up. Um, I started going off people I knew in school, basing characters on them. So I would have characters that look and spoke and acted like real people. Even if I sent them to ancient Greece, at least I knew the colors they liked, the expressions they used. I'd never seen my friend meet a woman from ancient Crete who wore her dresses cut down to her navel, but I had a pretty good idea of how he'd react if he met a woman dressed like that. Um, And as I got older, I borrowed characters from television, um, either the characters or the actors from movies, from music, rock bands, classical music players. I borrowed them from um, nonfiction, fiction. I borrowed them from professional poker players, professional wrestlers. Keep in mind they're human beings and react like human beings which means if they don't like dogs, they're going to back away from a dog, no matter how old they are, how educated they are. If they don't like fish, if they're really polite, they'll try and, you know, move it around on the plate so it it looks like it's been eaten. They do the things that people all around us do. So as much from reality as you can use to bolster your character, 
do it. If you use people you know, do yourself a favor, don't tell them. It can backfire on you. I don't care how many times they say, oh, come on, I know so-and-so is based on me. They look like me. Change something about them. Um, my friend Bruce Koval is a children's writer. He's a dad. He's a granddad. He taught grade school, grades kindergarten through four. Um, he writes for middle grade and beginning grades. He loves little kids. I made him Kiprioff the trickster god, because he is, he's very lively, he likes to joke, he likes to have fun, and I thought he was perfect. I forgot what Kiprioth was going to do in the second book with regard to two young boys. I got the phone call, because I told him, because I knew he'd find it funny. I, I got the phone call when he got the copy of the second book. Tammy. Hi, Bruce. How are you doing? Tammy. What Kiprioth did. Now, Bruce, you told me it was going to be okay. You understood that gods aren't like people. I know, I know. It's all right, but Tammy, don't tell them. Lie. If you're bad at it like me, practice in a mirror. Don't tell them you may base the character on them. Just it's better that way. I know Catherine Flannery, who asked that question, is going to really appreciate it because before we move on to the next listener question, I think it's important to let you know that she also wrote that your novels were the reason why she got into reading and writing in middle school in the first place. And she would skip homeroom with permission to go to the library to pick up the next lioness or protector of the small book on her list. And her books are, your books are how she survived middle school and became the person she is today. And she simply adores everything of yours that she reads. Tell her that she is part of my master evil plan. If I inspire enough other writers, I ensure that I never run out of anything to read. Oh, I Pretty love clever, that. huh? Very clever. Thank you, Tamara. And now next question is from Jean Rodrigue. She says that you are a legend in all capitalized letters. She said that you are one of the pioneers of young adults, and she would love to know how you managed to make a lifelong career of writing. Any tips for being part of the industry for a long time, not a fun time? Um, well, when I moved to New York, it was with the plan that I was going to find a job in publishing. Um, while I sent, wrote and sent my own stuff around. And I got lucky in that I found one at a literary agency, a very long established one. They had J.D. Salinger, um, Susan Howach, uh, gosh, Danielle Steele, um, the woman who wrote The Incredible Journey with the three, Judy Bloom, um, Niall Marsh, all these writers I'd grown up reading. So I was really excited. But the thing I found in the three years I was there was that the work I was doing at the agency in a way sapped my writing energy. I could still write. I often came in and worked because they had typewriters and I was living in a building with thin walls 
So people complained if I tried to write. Um, but I wasn't getting as much done as I needed to. So I left after three years, and they remained as my agents. Um, when Claire retired, my friend Craig Tenney took me on. And uh, I went to work. I, I took up um, temporary work. And I went to work as a secretary in banks and law firms. All I did basically was type. Uh, I typed if I had nothing, no other work to do. I wasn't emotionally committed to the job. It was just hit the thing with my fingers, um, run the errands, do the lousy stuff. So I was always dreaming about what I was working on. And in the meantime, at first, I was turning the Alana book into four books for teenagers. And then I started the Dane books and went to um, Riverside Park to learn about the animals I had available to me since I couldn't get out of the city. And my friend Raquel and I went to the zoos of the city to study them. And um, my books started coming out and I was one of the very lucky writers in that they were looking for female heroes. And I was one of the few writers for teenagers out there who was writing for them. And so booksellers and teachers and librarians were selling my books by hand enough that by the time um, I started the Circle of Magic series, I could barely sort of kinda make a living at it, which was very unusual. And by the 90s, I had gone, um, I had begun varying the circle of magic with the Cal books. And, my, and by the mid-90s, I was starting to do well. And people were going, well, who's this Tamara Pierce anyway? So I'm one of the lucky 2% that makes a living at it. But because I had before, I had those jobs that I didn't get tied up in emotionally. I wrote on lunch hours. I wrote on subways. I wrote on street corners if I was waiting to meet somebody, um, weekends, and just kept going. Um, being too stubborn to know when to quit is a real asset if you want to make a living in the arts. This is why your parents turn funny colors when you tell them you want to be a dancer or a musician or an actor or a writer. They want you to live in something that is not a cardboard box. Parents are funny like that. They want you to have dental insurance. <laughs> I hung by my fingertips for years. My husband was an actor and a video guy, and he hung for his through his fingertips for years. But we, we made it. We were lucky. Okay, now let's jump into the next one, and we'll make this the last listener question. Okay. So from Lee Ann Kostemski, she said, yes, I'm so excited for this. I just finished reading The Song of the Lioness for the first time ever and absolutely loved it. The Protector of the Small Quartet was the first Tamara Pierce series I read back in college, and I loved that one too. She does such a fantastic job creating such lovable, memorable characters. My question for her is... 
Do you have any world building tips specifically regarding the creation of magic systems and their rules? As a fantasy writer myself, I always struggle with that aspect and worry that my magic systems won't make any sense. So I'm always eager to hear any tips about it from successful fantasy authors. Okay, keep in mind, I'm not good at making stuff up. But I, <laughs> I'm really not. Um, I started thinking about ma- magic when I think I was in sixth grade or so, and I noticed it in the books I was reading, and I started reading books about magic itself, how it worked, um, what was the difference between a spell and a working, a major working. Um, and I read about medieval magic, which or Renaissance magic, which just seemed cruel to me. It was good. It was like they just pulled things out of the blue. And I was also taking science in school, so that sort of pulled into it. And um, I read the magic used by the gods in books by people like, um, oh gosh, what's his name? I'm forgetting, he wrote an adult version of the Greek myths. My brain's going blank. Because when I, if we were given uh, Edith Hamilton's Greek myths, I said, but this guy wrote way more and way different. When I was in fifth grade and my teacher said, don't mention him. Don't tell the others, because it was very explicit in a lot of areas. Um, but I was reading those books and the chemistry books, and I began to put things together from what I read. And then I started reading books about Wiccan practice and Satanic practice, because the Satanists were very big in the San Francisco Bay Area at that time. Anton LaVey's group, which is a little different from traditional Satanists. And Robert Graves, that's who it was. Robert Graves' translation of the Greek myths was very clear about the kind of magic being done um, and how the Greek gods dealt with it. Um, Athena turning Arachne into a spider for daring to think she could weave as well as the goddess. And then as I grew older, I read the mythologies the Norse mythologies, and then by the time I went to college, I was reading about the magics of people from all over the world, from New Guinea, from uh, the people who live in the north, um, people who live in the Russian forests, people who live in Africa, their spells and things, Cubano uh, magics. And then I in my senior year in college, I discovered Sir James Fraser, the writer of The Golden Bow. And what Sir James Fraser had discovered in his researches is that there are legends and myths all over the world. And there are some that are common to a number of different groups of people who do not have any contact whatsoever. There is a version of the Great Flood myth in nearly every culture across the world. And there are several other stories like that. 
that may gave me the ideal idea that maybe some of these things happened not the great flood well everybody has a big one anyway um and then i discovered this guy named scott cunningham um whose public books are published by Llewellyn, which is an occult publisher and cunningham um in addition to reading most of the people I respected, um, he did things like an encyclopedia of witchcraft, um, an encyclopedia of plant magic, um, magical meanings of rocks and stones. And they were dictionaries that told you not only what each meant in magical studies from all over the world, uh, and not just Wicca and Native American magics, Asian magics. He picked, he, he's very informative, but he also would include spells to work with different items and things you can replace an item you can't find with. So I used Cunningham to base my magical things for uh, Tortal. And then for the Circle of Magic, I went off the the our world physical aspects and also off of a great deal of Chinese magic, since I just happened to have an encyclopedia or two, um, for the circle of magic. Also craft magic. I was once sitting with my stepmother and Kim over the holidays, and each of them had a ball of yarn in their laps and a single needle, and they were talking, and they were watching television, and the needles were flying, and the ball of yarn got smaller and smaller, and there was cloth. And I thought at the time, if that isn't magic, I don't know what is. And then a couple years later, my friend Ruth and I went to Wanamaker's, this huge supermarket store in Philly, and we heard this man crying out, um, he can do bird, he can do cat, he can do fish. And I'm going, we're going, what the heck? So he went over and it was a French gentleman with an Italian glassmaker. The Italian couldn't speak English. The Frenchman could speak Italian and English. So he was telling people, if you ask my friend here, We'll make a glass animal or flower, whatever you want for you. And my friend Ruth, who's a big girl and big shouldered, and her boyfriend had named her Moose, wanted to do a moose. She had this huge collection of moose objects. And they didn't know, Tuscasse Moose, je ne sais pas, Moose, and they're talking away. And I go over the book section, find a big book of Canada and looked up the moose, brought it back, and said, see, moose. And, went, oh. and so we're walking away from there, Ruth has her moose, and we hear, he can make for you bird, he can make fish, he can make moose. And the people around us are going, moose? And I was watching him make these things, and it was magic. Mm. So that's where the idea for the circle started, between my ma and Kim, and my dad would do scrimshaw work. He was making a mountain man suit 
for this mountain get-together that celebrates American history. And he was cutting designs into an ivory horn, very small work. And a member of our radio company that I was in was an artist who could do uh, all, all kinds of painting. He could do wood carving. He could do ivory carving. He could do uh, glass blowing. And, um, and he made all the mistakes. He could, he could uh, spin any kind of clock. So whenever I got stuck, I just call him up and say, Thomas, help! And that's how I did it. That's how I made things. I would go out into the real world and I'd find them long, long, long before I ever thought I'd need them. Or I'd find them on the spot. I'd get to a point in the book where I'm stuck. Like when I needed the gardens for the trickster books. And I finally ended up because I could not find any pictures of Singapore. Any books with picture, big photos of Singapore in New York City. Or, for that matter, Los Angeles. I had to send to Singapore to get those books. So I could put them around my computer and describe the gardens in um, the trickster books for the book. By the way, do you know that my mom's side is Malaysian and Singaporean? No, I did not. Yeah, I completely understand the gardens. And I was just there a few years ago. They're so beautiful. It is so stunning. Oh my gosh. And the food is so good. Thank you so much for going so in depth with that. And I'm just going to squeeze in, not a question, but I want to squeeze in a compliment from another one of your fans and one of our listeners, Tracy Ann Canada. You have like over 30 more, but I'm just going to squeeze this one last one in just so you could hear her appreciation for you. She said, I I don't have a question, just oh my god. Tamara Pierce was the first writer I ever read that had female heroes in fantasy and showed me that I can put girls being awesome in books. The Lioness Quartet changed my life. And if you love using social media, let us know if there's a specific channel you'd love for everybody to check you out at, or you could just share all of your channels. And we're so happy to come say hi. Well, I'm on Facebook. Tamara Pierce on Facebook. That's all you need. And that wraps up our episode with the legendary Tamara Pierce. Tamara, I had the best time talking with you and listening to your story. Thank you for such a thoughtful and wisdom-packed conversation that I know our listeners will be over the moon about. And thank you also for opening up about your upbringing. A huge thank you to Melissa C. and Victoria Lee for stopping in and sharing their work with us. I can't wait for you all to meet Tessa and Yuki in Melissa's own voices YA contemporary novel, All Kind of Perfect, and Gnome in Victoria's debut fantasy, The Fever King, releasing on March 1st. These two storytellers are killing it by contributing so much to the young adult community by writing own voices and making more readers feel included. I am so proud of them both. Please support your fellow storytellers by following them on Twitter over at Melissa C. and So Said Victoria. And send them a tweet when you get the chance to show your love. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, we've officially launched our Patreon membership, and I'm lovingly calling all of our patrons super storytellers. If 88 Cups of Tea has been there for you in any way, whether that's through this podcast or our website resources, our private Facebook group, or our community in general, and you'd love to support the show and community in a tangible way, 
please consider becoming a super storyteller. Of course, there's absolutely no obligation whatsoever. Only do what you're able to and what feels right for you. If you'd like to join our Patreon, I'd be honored and I'm excited to share all the fun benefits with you from the different tiers and also have this opportunity to really pull back the curtains and show you more of the production behind 88 Cups of Tea. You can sign up over at patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. That's patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea. I very much appreciate you thinking about becoming a super storyteller and so much love to each and every one of you. Please be sure to say hi to Tamara over on Twitter at Tamara Pierce. To check out Tamara's show notes page and all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Tamara dash Pierce. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.